You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. This morning's text, we're back in the Beatitudes. We're back um, looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5 as we continue to work our way through the text. (coughs) The Beatitudes opens up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most famous sermons in the Gospels. Uh, So stand on me as we read. We're going to read the whole Beatitudes this morning, starting at 1, going through verse 12 just to remind us of the context. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Bow your heads with me. Father God, as we look at the text of scripture this morning, Lord, may it speak to our hearts. May it challenge us in the areas that we need to be challenged. And may it move us forward as we seek you in this journey of life. May it move us towards others in our, in our community. Um, Lord, may we love uh, better because of this text. In your son's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I apologize if my throat is a little scratchy uh, this morning. Um, I was fine uh, up until I got up on the pulpit this morning. So, of course, uh, it finally hits. Um, I haven't got back on cigarettes or cigars or anything like that. It's not that. Um, even though if you were here on Wednesday night, we were talking about the Colombo tactic. Uh, it was tempting uh, pull out a cigar and... Uh, what if people are questioning them all the time. Um, today's text, we're going to look at three verses, seven through nine. Um, so let's, let's dive right in. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is one of those Christian buzzwords, and for good reason. It is a mark of a Christian. I think it's best exemplified in the parable of the unforgiving servant that's found in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Let me read it for you and let the scripture wash you. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience to be made, have patience with me and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness are intricately tied to one another. You see, mercy is extended when forgiveness is is extended. If you have sinned against someone, you are in need of mercy and forgiveness. And while we love those concepts, especially when they're displayed to us, we can be uncomfortable with them when we have to extend them. And many times we'll fall into two camps. Either we don't acknowledge that forgiveness has a cost. What do I mean by that? And that, that what I mean by that is that we minimize the sin that has been occurred against us. And in the process, we actually minimize the cross. When we say it's no big deal, when it is, we do God and our offender no favors, especially if we are prone to dwell on that sin later, having forgone the chance to actually uh, deal with real reconciliation, real forgiveness, and real mercy. Forgiveness has a cost, that we actually have to deal with. The other option that many of us fall into is we limit our forgiveness to those who are worthy of it. We hold tightly moral debts that people have incurred to us like shackles to a slave and make them labor more than the scriptures require, ironically doing the same thing as the first option, which is minimizing the cross. Suddenly the sacrificial death of Jesus is not enough. And we need more reason to extend mercy. We need more bang for our buck for justice to be satisfied. You see, the first minimizes the value of forgiveness. It's no big deal. And the second minimizes the act of forgiveness. And the cross of Jesus is not enough. And this specific beatitude takes forgiveness and mercy very Seriously, think about what it says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, which points to the opposite being true. Well, what's the opposite here? Woe to those who lack mercy, for they shall receive none. And this theme is echoed over and over again within the text of Scripture. 
Think about the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's a warning as much as it is a prayer. If we choose not to forgive, if we choose not to have mercy, we are praying to God as we also have. We are saying, do the same to us. Further, Jesus, right after the Lord's Prayer, says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's very clear. We need to take mercy and forgiveness seriously. Why? Because our Father in heaven does. If you're a Christian, mercy should be a mark of our faith. And if one has received mercy, they will be marked by mercy. And, I love it, that mercy will be a tool used by God to draw others to himself. Hear Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service through, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, he's referring back to the sinner, Jesus Christ might display his patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I know probably like you, many many of you have heard stories where mercy was extended in the worst of circumstances, and it was that act of mercy that drew someone to saving faith. We've all heard stories of men and women on death row who suddenly they're met with forgiveness from the family of those that they harmed, and because of that, they develop a relationship, and saving faith is brought out in the person who committed the crime. And we should marvel at how the Lord uses mercy in that manner. I'm going to be honest with you, though. This call is so naturally hard for me. And I think it is for many people. You, I, I think people should reap what you sow. Right? You make a bad decision, well, there's a natural consequence for that. So mercy, without the work of Christ has been a difficult journey for me to be on. Very difficult. When I got saved, I was in seventh grade and I took a spiritual gift test soon after, okay? You can score a 30 on different categories. You know what I scored on mercy out of 30? Two. I was one of the most unmerciful people you can meet. But Lord in his wisdom has slowly sanctified me 
to give me more mercy. And I can promise you it is him, not me. Even worse, we live in a culture that promotes this, right? Cancel culture by its definition is the lack of mercy. And if we're honest, many of the people that are canceled in cancel culture deserve to be canceled. But if Christ were only just, he would have canceled you and me a long time ago. Yet Christ is both just and merciful. And we cling to his mercy. And for those who deny that mercy, they will receive only his justice. But why is mercy hard for natural man? Why is mercy hard for natural man? And I think is we don't have an accurate understanding of our own sin. And we don't have an accurate understanding of the holiness of God. Which is where our next beatitude takes us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. When I was in high school, I got to be in the show Arsenic and Old Lace. If you have ever seen it, it's a very, very dark comedy uh, when two older women um, lure widowers into their room for rent and then commit murder. Um, it's, again, a very dark comedy. Um, and they do it by uh, sprinkling um, arsenic into the elderberry wine that they give them. Now let me ask you a question. When you have your favorite beverage, how much arsenic do you put in it? I mean, a lot of arsenic, let's just be real, is going to be really painful. It's a quick way to die. Um, excruciating death. So let me ask you this. Is, on the flip side, is there too little arsenic? What if we just did a drop of arsenic? Would you drink it? Okay, let's be real. I think the answer would all be no, right? We like our pure beverages. And the moment a little sin, arsenic, contaminates it, we don't want it anymore. There's no one pure in heart except for Christ. All of us in this room have sin that still haunts our flesh, even if it's just a drop of arsenic. Even if you think we're a really good person, you still have sin that makes your heart impure. And like arsenic, it's the impurity that kills us. We see this in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Our hearts are not pure, and therefore we cannot see God. Why can we not see God? Because he's holy, holy, holy. And we are not this idea is painted over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of the sections of the sermon that I had to cut drastically because there was just so much. And I want to focus on just the one with the prophet Isaiah this morning in Isaiah 6. It's, a, it's a, just a very honest look at the holiness of God in view of our own sin. So Isaiah and Isaiah 6, this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook 
at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Notice a few things. First, holy is repeated three times. Holy is repeated three times. When we want to emphasize something in modern, like, literature, we put it in bold, we put an underline on it, maybe we highlight it if we're, like, really hip, we make it into a meme. Uh, like, we, we do things to highlight specific uh, moments. They did not have that in the old world. What they used was repetition. And here we see a description of God repeated in the threefold. Nowhere else is a description of God repeated three times. God isn't love, love, love. He isn't wrath, wrath, wrath. He isn't justice, justice, justice. He isn't mercy, mercy, mercy. But I can promise you, he is holy, holy, holy. So much so that the seraphim that surround him, God literally created these angelic beings with extra wings so that they could cover their face and cover their feet and be protected from the holiness of God as they stood in his presence. And Isaiah's response, right, when he sees God sitting on the throne isn't, What's up, pops? Good to see you. It isn't flippant. Even though we know from the Lord's Prayer that we have the intimacy of calling God the Father, if we look at the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, what does it immediately respond with after that? Hallowed be thy name. The holiness of God is still emphasized in the midst of the intimacy of God. It isn't wonder that springs to Isaiah's mind as he gazes upon the throne. It isn't even worship. Isaiah, in that moment of being in the presence of God, is undone. He is broken. Woe to me, I am ruined. Isaiah understands the holiness of God. And Isaiah understands his own sin in relation to the holiness of God. Do you wonder why some of us aren't excited about church on Sunday? It's because we lack an understanding of the holiness of God. You wonder why some of us struggled to get into our Bible over the course of the week? It's because we misunderstand and devalue the holiness of God. You wonder why some of us still cling to those petty sins like they're a pet? Because we misunderstand the holiness of God. When we lack an understanding of the holiness of God then our sin is not seen as wretched as it should be, and God's mercy is not seen as beautiful as it, should, as it is. But Isaiah does see this. You see, Isaiah is a man of great integrity. His peers would have seen him as the most holy man in all of Israel. And if Isaiah had compared himself to everyone else in Israel, he would have walked around with great pride in his own character. But when measured against the most ultimate standard in the universe, he is undone. Church, have you ever been undone? before a holy God. 
If you haven't, my prayer for you is that you would be at some point for your own good. The second thing I want you to notice is Isaiah's response. I'm a man of unclean lips. I think the words of Jesus shed some light on Isaiah's response here. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus' brother James says the same thing in his epistle. That is awful. I will read it to you, and then that is whoever put these slides together uh, needs to make sure the font's bigger. And the tongue is fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire corpse of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see, Isaiah knows that his mouth reflects his heart. Isaiah knows that his mouth reflects his heart. For even with a little poison in it, he knows that it defiles the whole thing. And Isaiah knows that this, while in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, yet, even though God would have been in his right to leave Isaiah there, our God, while holy, is a God of mercy. See what happens within the text. Isaiah 6, 6, and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Hear what R.C. Sproul says about this section. It's so beautiful. Isaiah was groveling on the floor. Every nerve fiber in his body was trembling. He was looking for a place to hide, praying that somehow the earth would cover him or the roof of the temple would fall upon him. Anything to get him out from under the holy gaze of God. But there was nowhere to hide. He was naked and alone before God. Unlike Adam, Isaiah had no Eve to comfort him, no fig leaves to conceal him. His was pure moral anguish, this kind that rips out your heart of a man and tears his soul to pieces. Guilt, 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 relentless guilt, scream from his every pore. The holy God is also a God of grace. He refused to allow his servant to continue on his belly without comfort. He took immediate steps to cleanse the man and restore his soul. He commanded one of the seraphim to jump into action. The angelic creature moved swiftly, flying from the, to the altar with tongs. From the burning fire, the seraphim took a glowing coal, took hot to touch, even for the angel, and flew to Isaiah. The seraph pressed the white hot coal to the lips of the prophet and seared them. The lips are the most sensitive part of human flesh, the meeting point of a kiss. Here Isaiah felt the holy flame burning his mouth. The acrid smell of burning flesh filled his nostrils, but the sensation was dulled by the excruciating pain of the heat. 
This was a severe mercy, a painful act of cleansing. Isaiah's wound had been cauterized. The dirt of his mouth was being burned away. He was refined by holy fire. In this divine act of cleansing, Isaiah's experienced a forgiveness that went beyond the purification of his lips. He was cleansed throughout, forgiven to the core, but not without an awful pain of repentance. You see, he went beyond cheap grace and easy utterance of, I'm sorry. He was in mourning for his sin, overcome with moral grief, and God sent an angel to heal him. His sin was taken away. His dignity remained intact. His guilt was removed, but his humanity was not insulted. The conviction that he felt was constructive. He had, his was no cruel or unusual punishment. A second of burning flesh on the lips brought a healing that would extend to eternity. In a moment, the disintegrated prophet was whole again. His mouth was purged, he was clean. He was pure in heart. And when you're pure in heart, you have the blessing to see God's face. And if you are in Christ, you're promised that. You're promised to see God's face. Numbers 6, 24 and 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet but appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is which leads to the last beatitude of the day. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It speaks of adoption. It is only when we extend mercy in light of seeing our sin and God's holiness for what it is that we have the chance to become peacemakers. Now notice how I said peacemakers, not peacekeepers, right? Any of you that have children in here, You've played peacekeepers your whole entire life, right? If I have my kids in the exact same room, I have rules and consequences that if you start wailing on one of your siblings, if you throw a sword at them, if you do X, Y, and Z, then there are consequences to be had. And in the worst moments of my parenting, I have to separate them and tell them to go to another room. Why? Because I need to keep the peace and I need to keep my sanity, right? And so we play peacekeeping. Much of, much of Middle East um, politics is peacekeeping, right? Peacekeeping is different from peacemaking. Peacemaking is seeing sin for what it is, seeing its effect on people, pointing out the mercy of God and bringing reconciliation to where there was conflict. Look, you can't have peacemaking if there's no conflict. Peacemaking exists in the midst of it. And when we do this, we're called sons and daughters of God. And yes, while seeing our Creator's face will bring us much joy, I can promise you that seeing our Father's face will bring us even more. I have a dear friend who was adopted as a child, and he was adopted into the most wonderful family. But because he was adopted, he always wondered about his mother and father. 
And in his 50s, because of modern technology and Facebook, he finally found them. And after a few phone calls, he finally got a picture of his dad and heard his voice, and they made plans to meet for the first time several months later. And when they met, they wept openly. His father didn't even know he existed for 50 years. And my friend had always wondered what his father was. He looked a lot like him. It was eerie, y'all. It was like looking in a mirror. How much more joy will our reunion with our Father in heaven bring? Look, I long to see my heavenly Father. I long to see Jesus. I have often daydreamed of what the first few minutes in heaven will be like. And I'm sure it's nothing like my daydreams. But the Father in his sovereignty and knowing what will happen knows exactly what my first few minutes in heaven will be like. And here's the amazing thing. He longs for it too. Your Father God longs for that reunion with you. You see, your God desires to see you face to face. It's not just one way. You see, the Savior we serve, the God we serve, is all the Beatitudes we've talked about. He's merciful for those who deserve it. He's pure. He's holy. And when we finally see him, when we are free from sin, he'll be beauty incarnate. We will never see anything more beautiful in all our existence. And God is the ultimate peacemaker. For once we were in open rebellion against God. We fought to tear down his kingdom. But God in his mercy, desiring to see you, sought you out. And in that moment where repentance happened, when Jesus found us, he brought peace to our lives. And when we finally reach the golden shores of heaven, the peace we long to experience here on earth will actually be actualized. And we will get to experience that for all of eternity. Peace with God. Look to your left, look to your right. Peace with our peers. Peace with our enemies who have turned to Christ. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Why? Because of the mercy of the Son of God. Amen? Please bow your heads with me.